for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Podcast. Podcast. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans podcast. My name is Ron Silico. This is lucky episode number 13. I'm really appreciative of that fact. Today I've got a very distinguished guest, one of my colleagues at Miami University, Mr. Stephen Gordon, and he's going to be talking about his role at Miami University, specifically being the expert on the schoolmaster of the nation, Mr. William McGuffey, from the 19th century, and also the curator of the McGuffey Museum on the campus of Miami University. Mr. Gordon, welcome. Thank you very much, Ron. It's a pleasure to be with you. So appreciative. I've known I've known Stephen for a long time, working out at the rec center, seeing him around campus. Uh, he's a wonderful resource and has a great ability to translate the history of Miami University to people that want to hear about it today. So, Stephen, can you give the listeners a little bit about your background, personally and professionally? Be glad to. Uh, I grew up in a Miami family, had five siblings, attend Miami. I got my bachelor's degree in history and my master's degree in history from Miami, so it's definitely part of my blood. Probably walked by this house uh, countless times to classes. Uh, And I must admit, I only was in here one time, and that was on a weekend, because the museum was only open on weekends at that time period. And uh, then I worked for the Ohio Historical Society for about 25 years and came here to Miami, which was like a homecoming. Uh, In 2006, a good friend of mine who was a curator, Beverly Bach, was retiring and suggested that I apply for the position. And I've loved ever since coming here and being able to share the wonderful legacy of this American educator and very significant figure, William Holmes McGuffey. Okay. Now... The, the house that we're in today, can you give a little bit of the background of this building? Uh, this building is on lot nine, Outlot 9 here in Oxford. It was a four-acre lot when William Holmes and Harriet Spinning and McGuffey purchased it in 1828. There was a frame house on the property that they, we believe they lived in while this house was being built. Uh, this house was completed in either late 1832, early 1833, when McGuffey had a three-year-old daughter and a newborn daughter named Henrietta. So he had two children, a servant and a wife, and himself living in this really nice middle-class federal vernacular-style brick house uh, when it opened in 1833. Probably some outbuildings. We're pretty sure there was a carriage barn, a smokehouse, a, obviously a privy and a well on the property. Uh, McGuffey tended gardens. We know this from his correspondence. He corresponded with Nicholas Longworth about his grapes that he was raising here on the property. Uh, He was a very uh, well-educated man. He got a a college degree from Washington College, Pennsylvania. He was born in Little Washington uh, in 1800. And then as a very small boy, uh, moved with his family to Trumbull County, Ohio, north of Youngstown, where he, he, by his late teens, he actually was a Coitsville Township trustee. So we think he was uh, a fairly mature young man. He was teaching uh, young students in Ohio and Kentucky. And then in 1826, when a vacancy came up on Miami's faculty, President Robert Hamilton Bishop, who had been teaching at Transylvania, knew of McGuffey and uh, invited him to come to be our faculty member teaching Latin, Greek, 
and moral philosophy in 18, November of 1826 is when uh, the student calendar started back then so they could get the fall harvest in. So that's when classes started in McGuffey's time period. Now, we, we've thrown the name William McGuffey around, and many in our audience may not know who Mr. McGuffey is. Why is he a relevant figure even today? The McGuffey readers, which he uh, crafted and compiled in 1836, the first four readers, would ultimately become the second most published text in American history behind the Holy Bible. It's estimated that over 100 million were published, and the possibility that of those 100 million books, several were shared with brothers and sisters. So it's very possible that many hundred millions of American school children learned their alphabet and learned how to read and write and learned about American history and great authors of the, of the age through these small, uh, almost pocket-sized uh, school textbooks, which were used in the common schools or the public schools uh, in all parts of the United States. Uh, they really were one of the most significant uh, publications in American history. The house we're in right now is a national historic landmark by virtue of McGuffey's role in increasing literacy in the United States. Now, if you could take our listeners, Stephen, back to the time period where the McGuffey readers would have been used by school children, what was, what was a school environment like back in those days? All right, the first readers were published in 1836. By 1837, they were uh, uh, what today we would call a bestseller. Uh, it was almost a consensus. They were a great improvement over some of the existing texts for several reasons. One of the reasons is because they, they had good illustrations. They had larger typeface. Uh, the stories that McGuffey told were told by a person that really knew how to connect with young people. Uh, he told of everyday scenes, growing up on a farm, growing up in rural America, and using these image, the common imagery of you know an axe or an animal on the farm to help people learn words and learn uh, language. And so the, the typical school environment would be a one-room schoolhouse that I think everybody knows. And in that one-room school, you would have the school teacher, the schoolmaster, which at that time period usually was a very young person. Uh, they would not have to have a teaching certificate. They might be somebody that just finished their own school. And there would be many different ages in this one-room school because you're in a rural, generally rural America. So you might have uh, older children mixed in with younger ones. But then some of the older children end up being tutors or mentors to some of the younger ones. And they would use uh, a variety of texts. Of course, the Bible was commonly used. And the McGuffey Readers became a very popular text for a lot of the teachers across the country. One of the things that made them popular is they tended to standardize a lot of your instruction uh, across the country, which a lot of the educators were looking for, so that a young child in Iowa could essentially be learning from the same books as a young child from Oxford, Ohio. Okay. Uh, going back to Mr. McGuffey's childhood, how, how would you describe it? Well, he grew up in a Scots Presbyterian uh, household environment. Uh, both of his parents were immigrants from Scotland. Uh, his father, Sandy McGuffey, was a Indian scout and uh, someone, a, a true pioneer in Western Pennsylvania. And, and those of you that know American history know that the, a lot of these Scots-Irish peoples tended to settle in, the, in either the Appalachian areas or the less fertile lands where they could afford land and would eke out a living on these farms. But part of that, that Scots-Presbyterian tradition was the belief that education 
would be the great lifter of one's family and one's future. That really, to succeed in life, you had to really uh, take your studies seriously, uh, learn to read, learn how to communicate. And I think McGuffey was very much a believer that he was trying to to mold and and bring young children to become good, well-behaved citizens in this new democracy. Because when you think about it, when he was alive in his youth, uh, the United States was a very young country. And we weren't sure if this democracy, which was kind of an experiment, would really work. And McGuffey felt like it was the role of citizens to be participants in the democracy. And to be a participant, and you had to be able to be have uh, good reading skills, good communication skills, and be able to use good judgment. So a lot of the readers were imbued with moral lessons and religious piety and proper behavior. We had to get along in society, in a democratic society with one another. And these, these stories were told in the McGuffey readers of how to, how, what, what is proper behavior? How should one treat others? So the golden rule was very, very important to uh, William Holtz McGuffey. Yeah. Really, for any any era, a very highly educated individual. What what did his education look like? We, uh, I have not. Yes, uh, when he got his bachelor's degree uh, at Washington College in 1826, he probably took a lot of the same subjects that he taught here at Miami University. The standard, what they call the classical curriculum, and mind you, in this time period, most of all the American universities were teaching young males for the professions. It would be the clergy, uh, physicians, or the law. Uh, And so they would take subjects such as Latin, Greek, ethics, which is called moral philosophy back then, some of the natural sciences. Uh, But really the foundation was largely in what today we would call the dead languages, rhetoric, a lot of uh, memorization, recitation, uh, reading, extensive reading. There was a great deal of reading back then and memorization. So I think McGuffey was certainly at age 26 when he started teaching in Miami. I'm sure that he was uh, had good mastery of his subjects and was ready to teach young men uh, who were coming from all across the country. This was truly a national university at that time period, very small. Mm-hmm. But by the mid-century, it was the fourth largest university in the country. Now, I read that his educational career as a professional, before he came to Miami University, it was very, what's the word I'm looking for? He traveled a lot. He did travel a lot. He, he, he would he would travel from place to place for a period of time and then mm-hmm. and then go through it. What, what kind of, what was that style like for him? A lot what, of it was just getting good, good experience, what we might call street sense. And actually the, the students that he taught and uh, today we would call that laboratory schools. And when he was living in this house, the story was told that he would gather youngsters from the Oxford area and come out the side door and have them sit on, on logs that were in the lawn. And he would start teaching these young students. And I thought that was a bit of an anecdotal story. There wasn't any fact to it till I came across a writing by his daughter that was written in the 1850s where she actually told that's the exact story. Hmm. And then what he would do is he would, he would learn what's, what lesson plans and what stories and what teaching methods really worked with these students. And that, those are the things that he incorporated in the McGuffey readers. So he was going through a lot of experimentation, I think, mm-hmm. when he was traveling in Ohio and Kentucky. And it, it was while he was teaching in, uh, outside Paris, Kentucky, 
1826 when Robert Hamilton Bishop uh, learned that he, he was a very promising young scholar. And so that's when he started his career at Miami. And Guffey would go on to teach until he was 73 years old. He was teaching at the University of Virginia, never retired, was in good health all his life until the last week of his life. And I think it's telling when he passed away at the University of Virginia in 1873, they closed school for the day. They put him in state in the rotunda of the library at the Hmm. University of Virginia and then had a university processional to the cemetery on campus at the University of Virginia where he is buried along with his second wife and daughter. I think that's a real testament to the way that the university and scholars viewed William Holmes McGuffey as really a major American educator of his era. Mm -hmm. A minor question, perhaps, but just something that struck my curiosity. I wondered if you knew the answer. Did he have an appeal of going to the University of Virginia and he was he a fan of Thomas Jefferson at all? You know, Ron, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. Uh, I think he was always trying to better his station in, in life for his family and for himself. Uh, I think he always reflected on Miami. He was here 10 years with fondness. And, you know, his son-in-law became president of Miami, A.D. Hepburn. And his daughter and son-in-law lived here for decades before they passed away in the 1920s. I think that uh, the University of Virginia was up and coming by the time he came on there in 1845, and he was highly recommended by several people that knew him, Uh, and I think he saw it as uh, a great opportunity, and uh, one that he would stay there for almost 30 years. Okay. Out of curiosity, the McGuffey readers, was that something that he took the initiative to write, or was it an assignment that he was given by the president of the university? How, how did that whole process play out? What we know is that uh, this house was completed in 18, about 1833. He had a young family. He had a mortgage. And like most families today with youngsters, they're probably a little strapped for cash. And uh, he was recommended by uh, Catherine Beecher in Cincinnati, Harriet Beecher Stowe's sister, mm. and a person that he he knew all the Beechers uh, through his academic connections in the area, and he traveled quite extensively to Cincinnati. We know this for a fact. Uh, Miss Beecher was approached by Truman and Smith Publishers in Cincinnati about writing a companion series of readers to the existing arithmetics that Truman and Smith had published under the authorship of Joseph Ray in 1833, which were very successful and made the publishers a handsome profit. Ms. Beecher said, no, I don't think I can, can do this particular project, but I have a colleague you might want to contact teaching up at Miami University. So the story that's told us, uh, Truman and Smith approached William Holmes McGuffey and he agreed. We have a copy of the contract signed in 1836 between McGuffey and Truman and Smith. It is in our special collections library, which confirms that he was uh, under contract to prepare the first four in a series of readers. And would, upon completion of the readers, would be uh, paid a lump sum of $1,000, which in 1836 was almost a year and a half salary. So our thinking is... People often question, why didn't he take royalties? That was foolish. Well, 
think about this, though. Uh, we, he had no idea really how well the books would sell, had a mortgage payment. Uh, that was cash in hand that he would get. So I think he was comfortable with that. None of his letters or any of his writings in subsequent years ever indicate any regret or any bitterness that the publishers became very wealthy, and he really didn't get much. But what I will often add to that is his name is on every book. And uh, he just became famous as the author of the McGuffey Reader. And uh, something I'm sure brought him great fulfillment and satisfaction, although I think his heart was always in the university classroom because he really never left uh, university faculty teaching position. It was always something. And by the way, uh, McGuffey was offered the presidency of three universities, and he declined them all after Ohio University. He was president of Ohio University for, I think, about three and a half years. And I think he just didn't have any, any love for administration. He loved the classroom. He loved scholarship, research, lectures. And he was offered in 1854, I believe it was, the presidency of Miami. He was urged to, to accept. He refused. He was offered the presidency of, at the time, was called uh, Washington College in Virginia, which became Washington Lee University. He refused that one. And the last one was the University of Missouri. So, and those would have been significant increases in compensation, but I think his heart really was in the classroom. A couple questions additional with the, with the readers is, number one, you, you could find copies of them. I've, over, over time, I've, have required a few copies at our house, uh, which is an old one-room schoolhouse in Oxford. Uh, so, if people wanted to get original copies of the readers, what, what do you recommend as a course of action to do that? Friends tell me. I don't uh, get online to do eBay, but a lot of people recommend eBay for buying books. Mm -hmm. And most of the readers that are in print after 1857 are quite plentiful. Uh, they're wood pulp. They tend to break down. Most of them you'll find are not in real good shape. Mm -hmm. They weren't meant to be. They're, they're school textbooks, and they were generally not well-preserved. They were utilitarian in nature. Uh, the other place would be antique shops or flea markets, uh, yard sales. They're pretty plentiful. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious about this because, obviously, in the 19th century, communication, long-distance communication, travel, was a very significant challenge. How did these readers get across the United States? How did they achieve the popularity and widespread distribution? We just had a class uh, uh, in uh, media and culture come through the museum the last couple days. Uh, we were addressing that very question. First of all, communication actually was a lot better, I think, than people realized. We had daily newspapers. In Cincinnati, there were several dailies. Uh, in 1837, coincidentally, there was a new journal that was being published in Cincinnati called the Common School Advocate. So there were journals and newspapers that were essentially uh, promoting uh, these new readers as being a very successful uh, new common school textbook. So word was getting out. The other thing is the publishers actually sent agents out to the school districts. So the local school boards would, would learn of this through agents. Uh, when, you know, it'd be Truman and Smith might have an agent that would show up to the Oxford Township uh, school board and say, have you, are you familiar with these new readers? And, and they were very uh, good at marketing. 
It's one of the things they had a great skill at, and they had agents, and they had they were fairly cost uh, cost effective in their uh, marketing. So they were affordable because they were not leather bound; uh, they were paper bound or cardboard, and uh, so they were just mass produced. And then word got out. Okay. Thumbing through the books and in the copies I have, to your point, <laughs> they're not in the best shape. So you have to be very gentle. Do you think do you think they would be effective in the classroom today? We do have a lot of homeschool students that come through, and they immediately know what they are. Hmm. So it's I can tell when somebody's homeschooled because if the youngster knows of the McGuffey Reader, I can almost be certain that they are homeschooled. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they would be a good supplement. I don't know if they'd be a primary text, but I think for the early grades, elementary school, I think in a lot of ways they would be very good it, to use as a supplement to their existing texts. It seems like the focus is on phonics, yes. reading, proper English yes. and grammar. Right. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You've kind of you've kind of hit on this a few times. I think I think we all are fascinated and at some point in our life appreciate people who are great teachers. How would you describe his teaching style and and what 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 did it, what have his students historically said about him? Well, we have numerous accounts. Uh, there, there's uh, and some of them are quite humorous over the years, both from students and colleagues. Uh, early in his career, I think he was probably uh, fairly demanding. I think he was, the, the best way I would describe McGuffey is, I think he was a fairly serious, rather sober person. Probably not a person that was easily humored. Doesn't mean he doesn't have a sense of humor, but I think he would took his, he didn't take himself seriously, but I think he took his work very seriously. And uh, he wasn't too impressed with himself because he would wear the same clothing and he was not interested in updating his wardrobe so that later years, his nickname was called Old Guff because he was wearing things that were very outdated for a college professor. <laughs> but it didn't, I don't think it bothered him. Uh, but the students admired him as a professor and teacher almost universally. And uh, his colleagues even said, you know, they were often admired him and were in awe of him because of how rigorous he was to himself. You know, he's very demanding of himself. Uh, he probably wouldn't, certainly wouldn't fit into today's collegiate environment because I think he had, uh, one of the reasons he left Miami, we believe, is because he had a disagreement with President Bishop on student discipline and student conduct. President Bishop later in his years was starting to become uh, a little more lenient and uh, le- lenient and liberal with his with uh, students and student uh, basically student roles on campus. And I think McGuffey was more a traditionalist, what they call old school Presbyterian. And that was pretty much a top down society. You know, the professor was right. There were rules and requirements, and this is basically the way it is. And so. Uh, you know, he was a he was a minister. He was ordained as a minister uh, here in Oxford Township in 1829. Actually, it was Riley Township. I'm sorry, just Bethel Church, just just down from Oxford Township. Uh, so he would go out on weekends and give sermons, and very long sermons, by the way. <laughs> and mind you, classes, college classes in McGuffey's times must have been agonizing because you might have to sit in a lecture for two, two and a half, three hours. Mm. And uh, it was it was had to be very demanding for a lot of these young students. 
He's a he's a he's got a tremendous reputation. He's a, he's got significant influence at a time in history when the United States is trying to come to grip with slavery, mm-hmm. leading up to the Civil War, and then after that, what what was his, what was his belief system, and what was he teaching his students about that tumultuous time? This is probably the biggest unknown that we have, we face in trying to understand McGuffey, uh, because that was the issue of discussion here on campus for most of the decades leading up to the Civil War. Uh, you know, were, were you an abolitionist? Were you a, did you support colonization? Or did you support assimilation within American society after abolition of slavery and emancipation? We had a lot of debates here on campus. Students, we had speakers come in, faculty. Uh, there were organizations, anti-slavery was very prominent here in Ohio, a lot of groups. McGuffey, for whatever reason, the best we can tell in his writings, because we have quite a bit of his correspondence here uh, in our special collections library and other writings that we've tried to to glean across the country. Uh, This was an issue that was very close to Vest, and I think it does fit one thing. He never showed his emotions. He didn't feel it was appropriate as an old-school Presbyterian. Emotion was something that you controlled. And I think the whole idea of slavery was something that lay beyond what he saw as what a a college professor and a Presbyterian minister should be concerned himself with. He should be concerned more with issues very closely, narrowly defined within the doctrines of either the church or the university. And he thought this was, in my opinion at least, a lot of this discussion would distract students from their scholarly work and their studies. Now that today we might look at that and see that's a cop-out, that's an excuse. But I think in his mind, he had everything very structured and ordered. So how did this northerner who grew up in Ohio, how did he fit in at the University of Virginia during the Civil War when most of his academic colleagues that were teachers there were surgeons or generals in the Confederate Army? Uh, we know this because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the faculty members, uh, uh, Professor Cabell and others that were well-known at the university, almost immediately joined the Southern cause. He didn't, of course. Of course, he was, by that time, he was far too old to be a soldier. But there's nothing as right. We have one letter that he wrote after the Civil War where he expressed great concern over the freed blacks and how they were going to endure the upcoming winter because he could see there were a lot of blacks that were homeless because they have no property. Hmm. And they were congregating in some of the cities, and he was worried about how are they going to get food, where are they going to find shelter, and winter's coming. So I think there was a compassionate side to the man, but he never, from what we can tell, ever took a role as a champion of, of emancipation or of abolition. And that's one of the great mysteries that maybe we'll never know. Hmm. You know, here was this northerner, uh, you know, who was teaching at the University of Virginia during, not only during the Civil War, but was living there until 1873. Mm-hmm. I think more research needs to be done on this. I haven't done it myself, but I think mm-hmm. it's a topic that needs to be further researched. Hmm. Interesting. What would he think of education today? At, at the, not only the, not only at the higher education level, but... Well, you know, Ron, that's a very difficult, I I really, you know, part of me would think that he he believed very much in uh, strict order, regimentation, you know, respect for your teacher and administration and hierarchy. 
So a lot of the student freedoms that we enjoy now, uh, which I personally think in many ways are healthy, uh, he probably would find very alien to his to his world. Mm-hmm. But I also think behind that, he would be amazed by the technology. I think McGuffey would actually be in awe of the, the technological breakthroughs that we've had and the ability of people to get information. That part, I think he definitely would. Because the reader, if you stop and think about it for a minute, the reader was a technological breakthrough because it enabled millions of people at the middle or lower incomes to have access mm-hmm. to uh, being able to read and write. And bring that, you know, to a mass of American people and hopefully uplift them and put them on a footing so that they could succeed in life. And uh, I think he would see the information and revolution today in a lot of the same ways. He'd be both baffled and, and amazed by it, I think. You mentioned this earlier, and it's it's in some ways an emotional trigger for me. The the amount of apathy for the political process and people participating in a democracy. How would he feel about that? That's part I think that he would be very, very disappointed to see. Because I, I think he saw his role as uh, helping young people become functioning, independent thinkers as adults and being able to be participants in this new democratic society whether they're manual laborers, whether they're farmers, or whether they're professional people, uh, but being able to make independent thought process and judgment and being able to communicate and be a... I think that's the key really was to be good citizens in this young democracy because he felt that if you didn't have a citizenry that could make informed decisions that increase the risk for totalitarianism or for people taking control... In that vacuum, if you had that vacuum of people that weren't participating, then bad things could happen. And I think a lot of the founding fathers felt the same way. Mm-hmm. We want everybody to participate. So he saw the readers, I think, and just his whole, uh, the core essence of the man, you know, is being able to uplift a lot of those people and allow them to become successful participants in this American democracy and be today what we call the middle class and be able to reach that. Mm-hmm. I know uh, in that vein, a very hot-button political issue is school choice. Schools were different mm-hmm. when, he, when he was was a teacher. How, well, how would he feel about the school choice movement? Oh, boy, I, I think he was a definite proponent of the public schools or the common schools. Mm-hmm and saw that, again, as a very egalitarian way of allowing people who otherwise couldn't have access to education. Because, as you know, interestingly, Ohio is one of the true uh, pioneers of taxing landowners for free and public education. And uh, it coincidentally, when a lot of these school districts were being formed and, and public education was being provided to school children, that's when the readers appeared. So, it was, you know, they say timing is so important, and that was clearly one of the great, you know, intersections of history there was the need for public education in these readers. And I think McGuffey sensed that. But I think he definitely would be concerned if, if there was something eroding the idea of good, strong public schools. Okay. School consolidation in the, it started in the 40s, 50s, progressed. How... how 
Would, was he a proponent of the one-room schoolhouse? Would he have I don't supported think, consolidation? I think he did. I think he saw the changes. In fact, we know he spoke in a lot of large cities uh, on various topics related to the readers and education. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think he was perfectly comfortable with the consolidation movement. Okay. Uh, besides getting hard copies of the McGuffey readers, is there are there ways to access things electronically on the internet? Are 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 the works published that people could view? Well, uh, I believe a lot of the they have been digitized, okay. and in fact, the the correspondence of McGuffey has been digitized by the Miami University Special Collections Library. We have a digital collection that you can go in there and see the actual manuscript itself, and then the transcription right next to it. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, digital library here, collections, and that's it's something I'm sure the McGuffey would just be absolutely amazed to see, that anybody with a laptop can just pull this up, this mm-hmm. information. Uh, and, of course, there's a tremendous amount of information out there on the web that you can get, mm-hmm. and by going to Miami University and linking up to McGuffey Museum. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you could, a visitor is interested in coming to Miami University and touring your building, your museum here. What 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 are some things a visitor can expect? Virtual reality, as I say. <laughs> this is not something you see on a flat screen. When you come here, you're coming to the actual place where the man lives, his family lived, history was made. You're going to see the actual artifacts and objects that he saw. You're going to be able to look out, as we are right now, at this growing university and just be absolutely amazed that it grew from a small frontier university in 1809 to this very prosperous, uh, I think, extremely vibrant community uh, 205 years later. And I think that he is a very important part of that. And of all our faculty members in the long history of this university, he still is probably the best known. Mm-hmm. Purely speculation, wanted to ask you. Uni- colleges, universities in Ohio have come and gone. Mm-hmm. Would Miami University survived had McGuffey not been here with in, with the professional reputation he had? Was there a, a recruiting appeal? To his fame? I think that one of the keys uh, in Miami being designated what they called the normal school or state normal college in 1902 was because of the legacy of William Holmes McGuffey, the fact that he was here and the McGuffey readers. Mind you, up until that time, uh, a lot of teachers did not have to be licensed to teach in Ohio. Ohio was one of the last states in the union to pass the normal school legislation, which required uh, teaching certificates. And the legislature authorized two universities, Ohio University in Miami, as what they call the state teachers' colleges. Ironically, I believe, in my opinion, it was those two, it was the state teachers' college at Miami University that probably saved this university Hmm. because our enrollment was very flat. As you know, we were closed from 1873 to 1885. Hmm. Had great difficulty increasing our enrollment. But when we got the State Teachers College and young ladies started coming to Oxford, Ohio, uh, it soon became uh, a magnet for young men to come to Miami. And so our enrollments, not coincidentally, increased dramatically once the State Teachers College was here. So in a roundabout way, I do think the legacy of McGuffey helped sustain Miami University. Before we wrap up, Stephen, 
could you speak a little bit about his family, his wife and his children, what, what his children did professionally and in the relationship he had with his wife? Yeah, it's, uh, it's well, actually he was married twice. He was married twice, yeah. which is not uncommon for the 19th century. As you know, uh, we had a lot of disease and infection and uh, McGuffey endured a tremendous amount of grief in his life. Yet despite this incredible grief of losing a, a wife and three children, uh, he managed to overcome this and never really seemed to have any bitterness. And again, I think that was part of his, his whole upbringing and not suppressing that emotion because there was work to be done. Uh, his first wife was Harriet Spinning from Dayton. Her father was a uh, common police court judge and had a large farm out there where Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is today. We think he was a fairly prosperous person. And when McGuffey met her here in Oxford in 1827 and eventually married her, we think it was uh, her inheritance that allowed them to build this very nice house we're in right now. 1830, had a, they had a daughter, Mary. And in 1832, they had uh, Henrietta. Henrietta would uh, go on to marry uh, A.D. Hepburn in Philadelphia. He was a graduate of the Princeton Theological Seminary. He became almost a son to William Holmes McGuffey. They had a very close, loving relationship until McGuffey died. Uh, and they came back to Oxford here uh, in the 1860s. He was the last president of old Miami. And then uh, when Miami closed, he went to Davidson College in North Carolina and came back. McGuffey had another son in 1834 named William Holmes McGuffey. Only lived two weeks. We don't know where he's buried, sadly. Yet another son, Charles McGuffey, who was born here in this, ha in this house in 1835. And uh, very sad story. Uh, Charles, Charles's mother, uh, Harriet Spinning McGuffey, died in 1850. At the age of 46, we don't know what the cause was. She died in her family home in Dayton. So she may have had a long illness because at that time he was living in Charlottesville, Virginia. So she came home in Dayton, died in 1850. And William Holmes decided that he would take his young son, who was uh, about 15 at the time, uh, up to do Vermont for just to get away. You know, just to get away from the grief. And unfortunately, he got tuberculosis up there and he died a year after mm -hmm. the mother died. But William Holmes, uh, one of the families living next to him in the uh, pavilions at the University of Virginia were the Howards. Uh, Professor Howard and his daughter, unmarried daughter Laura, who was significantly younger than William Holmes, I think 19 years, uh, William Holmes and Laura married uh, in late 1851, and uh, she would live till 1885. Uh, and they had a little girl named Anna, and Anna died on her fourth birthday and is buried in the uh, University of Virginia Cemetery with her parents. And this, this was, a, this was a, a death that really, really hit McGuffey hard. We have a, a very touching uh, letter that he wrote to a family member. It just makes you almost cry when you read it because you're just seeing this. At that time, you know, a man in his 50s who lost this absolutely lovely four-year-old girl just broke his heart. But, you know, again, you know, he was just this person that had incredible fortitude and uh, went on and continued teaching and lived with his wife at the University of Virginia in Pavilion 9. And if, for those of you who have never been to the campus of the University of Virginia, it's a lovely place on the lawn there. It's the end pavilion. Uh, and it, uh, he lived there for almost 30 years. 
Okay. Stephen, if people, if our listeners wanted to learn more about the museum and Mr. McGuffey and the work that you do, how could they connect with you? Well, they can email me as often the best way. And my email account here at Miami University is lowercase g-o-r-d-o-n-s-c at miamioh dot edu. Or you can log on to the uh, Miami University website and look for McGuffey Museum. And we have information. Our website now is under construction. We're adding more information. And, of course, there is a tremendous amount of information out there on the web you can find on, on McGuffey. Okay. Any upcoming events at the museum that you'd like for the listeners we're to thinking, know about? We're thinking about an exhibit for next year. We still haven't decided yet. We're uh, wrapping up an exhibit on President Stanton and his family right now. So it's most likely going to be something associated with uh, the families that lived here in the house or Miami University. Great. Great. Well, thank you for joining us on the show today. For those of you who listen, please take the time to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher. This is very important uh, to get the feedback on what you think about the show. Thank you for tuning in. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. What a great pleasure, Ron. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend.